2: Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 62.5 of the Jack podcast, uh, the podcast about all things special counsel. This is an emergency episode because we have the immunity ruling. I'm Allison Gill.
3: And I'm Andy McCabe.
2: Wow, Andy. So we got it. Uh, It never fails. As soon as I announce that I'm going to go on vacation, we get what we've been waiting for. Uh, And we got uh, the immunity ruling today on Tuesday. It came out this morning. Um, And I have to tell you, you know, um, we're about 75% on the way to my dream scenario, which has always been, you know, Jack tried to leapfrog the appellate court, went to Mm -hmm. tried to go to SCOTUS. SCOTUS said no, denied cert. Everybody was like, oh, huge loss for Jack Smith. I was like, wait a second. That's nope. If if we want my dream scenario to work out, they have to have denied cert here. Then we get uh, a ruling from the appellate court. They... Uh, issue a, a quick mandate, which allows the proceedings to continue, unless the Supreme Court intervenes, uh, and and that's where we are now. We just have to wait until Monday to see if the rest of my dream comes true. You are like at the goal line
3: for a dream. That's pretty good. That's you got far down this uh, dream track, and yeah. and today's. You know today's um, inclusion in that uh, in that TikTok is a big one. What an opinion this thing is! Holy cow! So mm-hmm. the first thing that jumped out at me is after our conversation last Friday, um, we have yet another Percurium opinion on our hands. An opinion in which, as uh, listeners will recall, it's not signed because it doesn't have to be signed because it is unanimous. Every word in this opinion, can be attributed to each one of the three judges. Um, And we know that we had a pretty, you know, a diverse panel there in terms of um, who who these judges were appointed by. So, yeah, it's a really strong statement.
2: Yeah. And that makes it a little less likely to be picked up by the Supreme Court, which is part four of my dream come true, right? That the Supreme Court will refuse to hear this case and allow the the DC proceedings to to get back underway and proceed so this is a per curiam opinion we don't know who wrote it it is unsigned as you said and every single word can be attributed to all three judges judges pan judge childs and judge henderson that is a two biden appointees and a gw bush Yeah. Uh, and so it is a quote unquote bipartisan you know ruling which is a thing now that used to not be <laughs> used to not be a thing <laughs>
0: we didn't
3: really even ever analyze or consider, you know, the political backgrounds of the judges. we just like, okay, that's what the judge said. That's the rule. Uh, but yeah, it's a different different world, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, you know, it's, it's kind of what we suspected they were working on. It's assiduously cited. There's a ton of precedent in here. There's a lot of references to historical evidence, a lot of sites to the founding fathers and the Federalist Papers. And it's just a really... Broad, um, resounding. There's no equivocation here. You know, a lot of judicial, um, you know, appellate court opinions. You'll hear, well, there's this side, and then there's that side, and you know, putting everything together, we go with, you know, B over A. That's not what you have here. This is just a resounding smackdown of all of the arguments presented by Trump's lawyers on appeal.
2: And there isn't even a I concur, but there's not even a, a concurrence here. This is all totally attributable to all the judges. And the top line here is that Trump is not immune. Uh, and and again, the mandate will issue Monday. Uh, and you know how we talked about, gosh, that'd be great if they lifted the stay. And it, and that's kind of essentially what this is: is they they give Trump until Monday to file his appeal either on bonk or to the Supreme court or both. Um, Joyce Vance says he might not even file on bonk. In this case, he might go straight to the Supreme court because of the time limit. Uh, but mm-hmm. that is a very fast turnaround. Mandates usually take 45 days or so. Uh, and so this is very quick. And so this kind of forces the Supreme court's hand, like you got to tell us whether you're going to grant cert or not quickly. So that the the d c yeah. trial can resume fifty seven pages uh, my guess i we we had a pool going on over on Twitter. I thought forty four pages, but it's fifty seven pages so i was I was off and This is from the introduction, Andy, for the purpose of this criminal case, this criminal case, former President Trump has become citizen Trump with all of the defenses of any other criminal defendant, but any executive immunity that may have protected him while he served as president no longer protects him against this prosecution. And of course, at this stage, they say, we assume the allegations set forth in the indictment are true. They have to do that,
3: yeah, and that's an important point because you'll see it in a lot of uh, a lot of the language here talks about his conduct and talks about it in the tense of what he did. Right after the election and before January 6th. And sometimes it could kind of, it kind of hits you a, a little bit awkwardly. And you, and you think, like, well, that case hasn't been proved yet. But as a matter of law, the, the appellate court in an interlocutory appeal like this has to take the allegations in the indictment as truthful. Understanding that those are all things that have to be proved later at trial, that's not where we are right now. We're in an interlocutory appeal.
2: Yep, and they first go at jurisdiction, and this is what I and you and I discussed about what could be taking a while because there was seemed to be at least by their questions in the the hearing that happened at, exactly four weeks ago today. Um, in their questions, they seemed to be at odds about the jurisdiction. Um, but they say, although both parties agree the court has jurisdiction over former President Trump's appeal, both Jack Smith and Trump think that this court has jurisdiction, there was an amicus curiae filed by American Oversight that raises the threshold question about our collateral order jurisdiction. So if you want to blame anybody, maybe American Oversight. But they had a, <laughs> this was a very good um, uh, amicus curiae brief to, to file, because it did raise a lot of important questions about jurisdiction. They say the Midland Asphalt Court emphasized that criminal collateral collateral orders that are based on, one, a right not to be tried, must rest upon an explicit statutory or constitutional guarantee that trial will not occur, singling out the double jeopardy clause and the speech or debate clause. So in Midland, they specifically singled out double jeopardy in speech or debate. Former President Trump does not raise a straightforward claim under the double jeopardy clause, meaning he's not doing the Fifth Amendment double jeopardy, Mm -hmm. but instead he's relying on the impeachment judgment clause double jeopardy thing. Thus, he does not invoke our jurisdiction based on the explicit grant of immunity found in the double jeopardy clause. So that's not why we have immunity. But we can exercise jurisdiction for two reasons. First, Midland asphalt is distinguishable and does not require immunity to derive from an explicit textual source. And second, the theories of immunity, uh, former President Trump asserts, are sufficient to satisfy Midland asphalt under precedent. So that's really uh, remarkable because... It seemed through the questioning of Pan and Childs that they there was a disagreement with Henderson on, on jurisdiction here. But again, they may just have been covering all their bases.
3: You know, this is about as clean a way as we could have possibly hoped for them to resolve this apparent variance on jurist on the jurisdiction issue. Because during the during the oral arguments, it seemed like they were kind of in two different places. They both tried to kind of lure DOJ into arguing for no jurisdiction and DOJ kind of pointedly turned that opportunity down saying they were more concerned with the uh, fair administration of justice and wanted to have the issue heard. So we were both kind of wondering, like, how are the three of them going to get together on this jurisdiction issue? If they're split at all, it undermines the strength of the opinion and maybe raises the the possibility of a Supreme Court review. Um, But of course, they didn't. They didn't. They came together predominantly around Midland Asphalt, which is the case, the Supreme Court uh, case that defines basically how uh, courts should decide whether or not an issue should be handled on an interlocutory appeal like this. So that's an appeal that goes up before the trial takes place. And essentially, Midland has three different factors. The first two were not uh, at issue, but the third factor is to be considered whether or not the issue is unreviewable on appeal. And what essentially makes something unreviewable on appeal is the deprivation of the right not to be tried would be unreviewable on appeal from a final judgment. So in other words, if you had a double jeopardy argument for immunity and the court waited and said, well, you can raise that appeal after the fact, it's no good because you've already been tried twice. You've already been put in jeopardy (laughs) twice. The right was basically obliterated by the process. And so this is what they find here, that Trump's argument essentially would be unreviewable on appeal, which makes the entire thing eligible for interlocutory appeal status.
2: Yes. And how many times, Andy, did I mention to you or on Twitter or in my posts or uh, elsewhere that during the arguments, Judge Henderson said, but in Midland and a, a, a case that quoted Midland did call digital equipment. Uh, they say that um, it's it's characterized as a suggestion. Midland is just a suggestion, right? I mean, how many That's times right. did I bring that quote up? And here in this decision. They say the Supreme Court itself has hinted, although not squarely held, that Midland Asphalt's language should not be read literally. In digital equipment, the court quoted the relevant sentence from Midland Asphalt and characterized it as a suggestion. Again, precisely what Judge Henderson said during arguments. I focused on that. I zoomed in on that and said, okay, well, this is why uh, Judge Henderson feels that they have full, total, all-out, you know, balls to the wall jurisdiction because that's right. asphalt That's asphalt right. is merely a suggestion, and the Supreme Court quoted digital equipment. And there are so many references to the Supreme Court, which is what makes this or such a solid ruling. And 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 hopefully, the Supreme Court will decide it's not reviewable. Now, both they go on to say both of former President Trump's arguments are at least analogous enough to the speech or debate clause or the double jeopardy clause to fit within our precedent, meaning. These arguments, both of both of these arguments, are close enough. Accordingly, we will conclude that we have jurisdiction to reach the merits of former President Trump's appeal, and this is this is a big deal because they were talking about hypothetical jurisdiction doctrine, like maybe if there's a disagreement between the judges about whether or not they have jurisdiction, which seemed like that's what was happening, um, that they could reach the merits using hypothetical jurisdiction, but they don't even do that here. And again, I think that is what they were all working on together to put together this pure uh, per curiam order and ruling to say, we absolutely have unequivocal jurisdiction on both of these appeals, double jeopardy and and absolute immunity, and therefore we can rule on them. And that is huge here. It it
3: really is because you want to put forward this impression that there is no question, there is no legitimate question of law here for the Supreme Court to weigh into. Now they could always disagree um, and decide there is there is an important issue that only they can weigh in uh, weigh in on and decide, and and so they'll do that, but. Every aspect of this opinion that is uh, unanimous, that, as you said, is well-founded in Supreme Court precedent, all those things build toward a very strong opinion in which the likelihood of the court seeing a hole in that logic that they need to rush in and fill, uh, that likelihood goes down. So I, th- I think we're, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine this having come out uh, in any stronger capacity.
2: Yeah. And in doing that, they almost box out the Supreme Court. You know, like, look, the Supreme Court said this. You said this. Kavanaugh, you said this. Scalia, you said this. We'll get into a little bit of those details a little bit later. Uh, But, you know, to lay the foundation of absolutely we have jurisdiction because his claims of double jeopardy and total presidential immunity are analogous enough under Midland asphalt to the speech or debate clause that we can go forward here and and rule on the merits and rule firmly on the merits and quote the hell out of the Supreme Court, particularly conservative justices on this one. And then, as you said, they have a ton of other precedent in the circuit that we'll talk about uh, in a little bit. But we need to take a quick break. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back.
0: Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns and Money you will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.
3: Okay, so we're back and we're going to dive into really the merits of the, uh, we've Passed over the jurisdiction section. Now we're going to get into the merits of the argument. So the court first addresses uh, Trump's claim of absolute immunity from criminal prosecution for all official acts undertaken as president, a category he contends that includes all of the conduct alleged in the indictment. Now, the Supreme Court has consistently held that even a sitting president is not immune from responding to criminal subpoenas issued by state and federal prosecutors. And for that, the court points to Trump versus Vance uh, and also U.S. v. Burr. In the civil context, so not criminal cases, not criminal investigations and criminal trials, but rather civil trials between two citizens, the Supreme Court has explained that a former president is absolutely immune from civil liability for his official acts defined to include any conduct falling within the outer perimeter of his or her official responsibility. Um, now both sitting and former presidents remain civilly liable for private conduct that they may have committed, uh, in office. And, and the best example of that is always the Clinton v. Jones case in which, uh, Clinton, uh, was forced to sit for depositions in a civil case, uh, filed by Paula Jones.
2: Yeah. And they also bring up Game, which was a recent, um, a case that they ruled on as well. That was one of the January sixth. Where you know where the Capitol police officers are suing Donald Trump for his conduct civilly on that's January sixth, right. and that's an important case here as well.
3: And that's what makes this case such an, a unique issue of first impression, as the court says uh, earlier in the in the uh, in the opinion. This issue of whether or not presidents have any liability or immunity on the criminal side has never been squarely addressed before. So that's what they dive into. So they say former President Trump's claimed immunity would have us extend the framework for presidential civil immunity to criminal cases and decide for the first time that a former president is categorically immune from federal criminal prosecution for any act conceivably within the outer perimeter of his executive responsibility. Now, Trump argues that the, there are three basic reasons or three arguments upon which he bases this claim of immunity. The first is a separation of powers argument, in which he's basically saying that Article Three courts or federal uh, federal courts lack the power to review a president's official acts. So, there's a separation of powers. Sorry, this, according funny. to Trump. <laughs> Separation of powers means that the court system can never review the acts of a president. His second argument is more on the policy side. And he claims that there are policy considerations rooted, again, in the separation of powers that require immunity to avoid trampling on executive power. So in other words, um, there are policy considerations that in order for, uh, for a president to be exe- to be able to execute his commander-in-chief authority or other Uh, constitutionally granted powers Uh, you can't have um, you can't have the judiciary stumbling in and telling him what he can and can't do and then finally his final final argument is that the impeachment judgment clause does not permit the prosecution of a former president unless he's already been impeached by the house and convicted by the senate all right so those are his three arguments in a nutshell now relying on these sources the court goes on to say we reject all three potential bases for immunity both as a categorical defense to federal criminal prosecutions of former presidents and as applied to this case in particular. Ooh. That's a double punch in the face. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's like double, double. That's like you're wrong on principle. What you're arguing for does not exist uh, in theory. And it also doesn't exist in practice. Like we're, we're extending our holding to the facts on this very case. Like it's one thing to say, no, that privilege doesn't exist. It's another thing to say, it doesn't exist in theory. And as you, as you've lived the facts of this case, it doesn't apply to you here.
2: Yeah. And judge Luttig brought that up in his, in his amicus brief, judge Luttig at all, the other, um, 23 or so, um, officials, uh, you know, basically saying particularly here where you tried to stop the transfer of power, especially here, you can't be immune. Uh, and so it's just no immunity stacked upon no immunity. So that's right. It's kind of wonderful. And we'll get to the even ifs later on, you know, I love an even if in a court filing.
3: (laughs) Even if you do, we'll get there anyway. Oh, sorry.
2: I, I can't believe. <laughs> Even said if you that. want to talk about it, and talk about it. Now, I have something. I have a present for you, Andy. Okay. Because they talk about the separation of, of powers doctrine here, and Trump's yes. argument that all Article Three courts lack the power to review the president's official acts. Quote: yes. It is settled law that the separation of powers doctrine does not bar every exercise of jurisdiction over the president of the United States. Look at Fitzgerald. Look at Nixon. Mm-hmm. He relies on Marbury's oft-quoted statement. Remember? Because he kept repeating this, John Sauer, over and over again.
3: Yes. I remember because it annoyed me so it annoyed much every the time. the hell out of you.
2: You were like, can I just say? So his oft-quoted <laughs> statement that the president's official acts can never, quote, be examinable by the courts, unquote. And here we go, Andy. Former President Trump misreads Marbury and its progeny. Mm-hmm. Properly understood- The separation of powers doctrine may immunize lawful discretionary acts, but does not bar the federal criminal prosecution of a former president for every official act. There you go, Andy. So now they are saying that you can you are you can be criminally prosecuted for official acts, not just stuff outside the perimeter of your stuff. Right.
3: And you know what? Of course you can. Of course, you can. It's absurd. It, it's an absurd thing to assert, um, and then to cloak, try to cloak it in a misreading of Marbury is, I think, offensive to a lot of uh, to a lot of lawyers and people who um, who read these opinions. I mean, you know, the court here goes deep into um, Justice, of course, uh, John Marshall, who wrote the opinion in Marbury. Um, he, in that opinion, makes a distinction between discretionary or political decisions and acts of a president and what he calls ministerial acts of a president. Um, Discretionary being not reviewable and ministerial being reviewable. And it's important to know, like, ministerial makes it sound like, oh, he's putting on a fancy hat and waving a, you know, (laughs) (laughs) waving a scepter (laughs) over somebody. That's not what it means. Ministerial means... These are the actions that a president must take because Congress has signed, has passed a law that imposes upon the president a duty to act under some circumstances.
2: Yeah, a perfect example is is the vice president's role on January 6th.
3: Exactly. So that these are duties that are imposed upon uh, officers of the government, and to include the president, and when they fail to act in concert with that, when they fail to live up to those obligations, that action or inaction is reviewable by courts. and And why wouldn't it be? It's a viola- It's the most fundamental violation of law.
2: Right. So, like, if if Vice President Pence or a future Vice President J D. Vance <laughs> wants to throw out electoral votes on January sixth that is against the law. And yeah, exactly, by the
3: exactly. Uh, so yeah, I, I I was so glad that they addressed this directly because the the um, it really kind of set the record straight. Um so they so they go on to say that the cases following marbury confirm that we may review a president's actions when he is bound by the law, including by federal criminal statutes. Uh, The Supreme Court exercised its cognizance over presidential action to dramatic effect in 1952 when it held that President Harry Truman's executive order seizing control of most of the country's steel mills exceeded his constitutional and statutory authority and was therefore invalid. It's like the perfect example of the courts constraining a president's ability to act constraining it in a way that's consistent with the law. Uh, further, the Supreme Court has repeatedly affirmed the judiciary's power to direct appropriate process to the president himself. The separation of powers doctrine, as expounded in Marbury and its progeny, necessarily permits the judiciary to oversee the federal criminal prosecution of a former president for his official acts because the fact of the prosecution means that the former president has allegedly acted in defiance of Congress's law, right? It's just what we were talking about a minute ago. Um, Our conclusion that the separation of powers doctrine does not immunize former presidents from federal criminal liability is reinforced by the analogous immunity doctrine for legislators and judges.
2: Yeah, remember all those arguments about how, you know, we do this with judges, we do this with legislators, we should do it with you. Yeah. And I thought that that was uh, really good that they covered that as well. Um, So they go on and talk a little bit about Article 3. They say they conclude Article 3 courts may hear challenges or charges alleged in the indictment under the separation of powers doctrine, as explained in Marbury. So your argument that Marbury immunizes you, it does the opposite, basically. <laughs> <laughs> it, does, it, it puts you right in
3: the grease. You're in yeah. there. <laughs> and,
2: and it's Mar- Marbury and its progeny and applied in the analogous context of legislative and judicial immunity. Former President Trump lacked any lawful discretionary authority to defy federal criminal law, and he is answerable in a court for his conduct.
3: Yeah, I mean, there are so many places in this opinion that really resonate with this overall theme. And it's the first thing that you and I talked about when he filed this motion, however many weeks ago that was, which is what he's asking for is fundamentally uh, in conflict with who we are as a nation, with what the Constitution says, what the Constitution means, what our founding fathers intended when they wrote it that way. And that is we live in a nation under law, not under a king, not under a dictator. What's supreme in this country is the law and it's applied to everybody in the same way. So what he's arguing for here is fundamentally un-American.
2: Yep. And, and here's something that's interesting that might actually play a little bit of a role, at least if I were arguing on on Thursday morning, this coming Thursday for Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. On page 24, the court concludes that basically the president is an officer of the United States. And the quote yeah. is, no man in this country is so high that he's above the law. No officer of the law may set the law at a defiance with impunity all the officers of the government, from the highest to the lowest, are creatures of the law and are bound to obey it. That's Lee. That's U.S. v. Lee, and Kavanaugh concurred in Trump v. Vance by quoting U.S. v. Lee on the fact that no officer of the law may set the law in defiance. So this could come up if I'm if I'm arguing on behalf of Colorado and Colorado Supreme Court and the petitioners in Colorado to keep him off the ballot. I'm bringing this up, particularly right to Kavanaugh's face. On, totally, on morning, totally. right.
3: And I'll, I'll give you another yeah. one to bring up well, right to his face.
2: Yeah, because I, I know where you're going. <laughs> um, and we're going we're gonna to talk about this a little bit later. Um, but this is a great Let, quote.
3: All right. So it's a little further in the, in the rationale, and we'll get to it in detail. But basically, the court is talking about the take care clause – and they quote, um, they quote Youngstown again, uh, Judge Jackson concurring, uh, which basically the quote there is just uh, says that the take care clause plays a central role in signifying the principle that ours is a government of laws, not of men, and that we submit ourselves to rulers only if under rules. So then this court goes on to say it would be a striking paradox if the president who alone is vested with the constitutional duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed, were the sole officer capable of defying those laws <laughs> with impunity. Once again, referring to the president as an officer uh, for constitutional purposes, which I take as a good sign.
2: Yeah, yeah, we'll see what yeah. yeah. And I, I'm going to be looking forward to uh, somebody, some lawyer, uh, having those those two particular quotes come out of their mouth from this ruling. That's right. Uh, so I'm, it's going to be an interesting morning on Thursday as they argue Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. God, wouldn't it just be like the trifecta if the Supreme Court somehow ruled that he was ineligible <laughs> to be on the ballot? I mean, I'm not expecting them to, but I can't in my head put together a legal reason for them to conclude that he should be on the ballot, it's going to be really interesting to see.
3: it will it will not be this week <laughs> it's going <laughs> no. to take a little while to get the, the answer to those questions but yeah. um, I'm with you I, I feel like that's that one's a real long shot but uh, we'll see we'll see yeah. you never you never can tell.
2: We will see. All right. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about those policy considerations. You know, Trump saying you're going to open Pandora's box, all the stuff he does on Truth Social. I have to have immunity or I can't lift a finger. Uh, Every president's going to be haunted by indictments until he dies once he... That whole argument is addressed next. We'll get to it right after this break. Stick around. Um, um. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about the section on functional policy considerations. They say, even though it is proper under Marbury and its progeny for an Article Three court to hear criminal charges brought against a former president, we necessarily must weigh concerns of public policy, especially as illuminated by our history and the structure of our government, including our constitutional heritage and structure. Again, this is addressing Trump's argument that if presidents aren't immune, they won't be able to do their job and it would open up that Pandora's box of uh, unimaginable amounts of indictments, which I haven't seen any of the other four remaining retired living presidents face, uh, <laughs> but that's his thing, his whole thing on Truth Social. His his new, uh, his new motto is save immunity uh, and that's what he put out today on Truth Social, which is also under federal criminal investigation for money laundering. Um, but the court says... We note at the outset that our analysis is specific to this case before us, in which a former president has been indicted on federal criminal charges arising from his alleged conspiracy to overturn federal election results and unlawfully overstay his presidential term. We consider the policy concerns at issue in this case in two respects, right? The Pandora's box, Mm -hmm. two respects. First, we assess possible intrusions on the authority and functions of the executive branch, and the countervailing interests to be served as those concerns apply to former President Trump's claim that former presidents are immune from federal prosecution. They say, we conclude that the interest in criminal accountability held by both the public and the executive branch outweighs or countervails the potential risk of chilling presidential action and permitting vexatious litigation. And Judge Pan had a very long series of questions about this. And so did Judge Childs talking about, look, we we have to weigh against what you claim is the power of the executive under Article 2. We have to weigh that against the public's interest and the executive branch, branch's interest in criminal accountability. And they conclude that the criminal accountability in the public interest outweighs your concerns. And here's yeah. where Judge, Judge Luttig's argument about the executive vesting clause comes into play, right? You know, we had that amazing mm-hmm. interview with the judge. They say, second, we examine the additional interest raised by the nature of the charges in the indictment. The executive branch's interest in upholding presidential elections and vesting power in a new president under the Constitution and the voters' interest in democratically selecting their president. We find these interests compel the conclusion that former President Trump is not immune from prosecution under the indictment. And why? Here's where Judge Pan's argument about SEAL Team 6 comes into play, right? They say, moreover, past presidents have understood themselves to be subject to impeachment and criminal liability, at least under certain circumstances. So the possibility of chilling executive action is already in effect. You can be impeached. And Trump, Trump, you even conceded. That criminal prosecution of a former president is expressly authorized by the impeachment judgment clause if you're impeached and convicted. Remember when he had to admit to that? Oh, sure. That was was huge. Yeah. And they also bring up, Andy, they bring up the Ford pardon. They say, additionally, recent historical evidence suggests presidents, including Trump, have not believed themselves to be wholly immune from criminal liability for official acts during their presidency. Gerald Ford issued a full pardon to Nixon, with That's which right. both former presidents evidently believed was necessary to avoid Nixon's post-resignation indictment. So you argue that, that a president can't lift a finger and they need to be immune, but presidents are already under scrutiny through the impeachment process. And through your own admitted potential criminal prosecution, if you're, you know, convicted in the Senate, which is all wrong, we'll get to that later, but you admitted you can be prosecuted. So there, so th- this immunity hasn't existed and therefore can't bar you from doing your job.
3: That's right. That's right. They also, in addition to Ford, they refer to the deal that Bill Clinton cut with the special counsel uh, investigating, I guess it was Whitewater, although it went. Pretty far beyond that, uh, to surrender his law license for five years and I think a fine of twenty five thousand dollars after he left the presidency, in return for uh, an agreement by the special counsel not to pursue criminal charges. Mm -hmm. Um, So look, there's multiple examples right there of presidents who were fully cognizant of the fact they could be facing. Uh, criminal culpability for acts that they had uh, engaged in while president. So this idea that, you know, striking down Trump's request for immunity will somehow unleash, you know, as you say, <laughs> open the Pandora's box of now every president to follow will never be able to do anything, will never be able to make a, a strong or bold or quick decision while in office because they'll be so afraid of, of criminal prosecution after they leave is just ridiculous and i would i would argue and i feel like there's um i can't find the exact quote right now but there are references to this in the opinion the idea of criminal liability is a good thing
2: right you right.
3: you want presidents to realize that they should follow the law and if they don't follow the law there could be a penalty for that there's a there's a healthy, uh, you know, it's called deterrence, right? There's a healthy effect. When people understand when criminal liability is going to be imposed upon them, they, they, you know, mediate uh, and regulate their conduct uh, to make sure that they don't violate the law, which is, at the end of the day, not a bad thing.
2: Yeah. and if And if those arguments weren't enough to bury Trump's, you know, argument even further down in the ground they actually addressed the fact that Trump's lawyers argued against impeachment because he could be indicted. They brought that up. They said it's in the congressional record. I was so glad they brought it up in the hearing. Yeah. And they bring it up here again. And it's so important. They say during President Trump's 2021 impeachment proceedings for incitement of insurrection, his counsel argued that instead of post-presidency impeachment, you shouldn't do that. We don't need to impeach because the appropriate vehicle for investigation, prosecution, and punishment is the Article Three court's. As we Gee. have a judicial process <laughs> and an investigative process to which no former office holder office, so it is an office, <laughs> to which Those. no former office holder is immune. So there you go again, Colorado. He, he, that Trump's lawyers during the impeachment said he was a, he was an office holder and that the presidency was an office, yeah, uh, and, and then
3: and uh, assured us all that he was uh, subject to the to the jurisdiction of the Article Three courts that are not allowed <laughs> the, to review the actions yeah, of the president. I don't know. He Seems Marbury. a little contradictory there, but okay.
2: We're going to cherry pick Marbury and say Article Three courts can't review me, but during impeachment, I'm going to say, hey, I can be reviewed by Article Three courts, so don't impeach me. Exactly. It's his all back and forth. Like, I'm not an officer uh, when it comes to Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, but I sure am when it comes to trying to get the DOJ to represent me in the AG Jean Carroll case. He, he, he right. takes whichever position suits him at the moment, and it's going to bite him in the ass. And then, of course, they bring up the take care clause, too. That's another that's the final thing that just buries his argument totally his argument that uh, presidents have to be immune or they can't do their job. Uh, they say there's also a profound Article two interest in the enforcement of federal criminal laws. The president has constitutionally mandated duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. It would be, as you said, Andrew, a striking paradox if the president, who alone is vested with the constitutional duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed, were the sole officer capable of defying those laws with impunity. So there's the, as we say, the third time they call the president and the, the presidency an office or an officer of the United States. And then they say, we therefore conclude that functional policy considerations rooted in the structure of our government do not immunize former presidents from federal prosecution.
3: It's an interesting section in the opinion because on the one hand, it's not really a legal argument, right? And you don't often see courts really taking this kind of uh, a detour or or a side trip uh, into like policy concerns. I'm not suggesting that it was an inappropriate thing for them to consider. Um, But I, I think that you're seeing it included here because they want to specifically address and then, of course, refute Every single argument that he raised, yeah, and, and that's some one of, of his the three arguments main arguments, he, right? And some of them, some of those arguments are not traditionally legal. You know, <laughs> we'll get to this later, where they kind of give him this uh, left-handed uh, smack over his uh, principles of double jeopardy, <laughs> his reliance <laughs> not on the double jeopardy clause, but on just some sense of double jeopardy that's somehow imbued in the impeachment clause. Um, yeah, those those arguments are a little tougher for courts because it's not like a real legal thing, but this court did not uh, shy away. They just dove right in and addressed the things that he raised and really dismissed them, uh, I think, in a pretty convincing way.
2: Yeah, but you wanted jurisdiction, you got it. He might have been better off arguing that they didn't have jurisdiction.
3: <laughs> <laughs> we we withdraw We withdraw the motion on lack <laughs> I mean, of jurisdiction.
2: You guys don't have jurisdiction. Come on, you don't have jurisdiction. Midland Asphalt, please. Um, yeah, because that could have been remanded and it have to be redone, and then Supreme Court might have been more likely to take it up. It could have, uh, if his if his object was to delay, he probably should have argued uh, that he that they didn't have jurisdiction here. But boy, you asked for it. And and, and speaking, yeah. yeah, and speaking of that, more about uh, Judge Luttig's amicus brief, immunity from this specific indictment. Remember how Judge Ludig was like, "Yeah, you can't be immune, but you especially can't be immune for trying to overthrow the government and, and block a peaceful transfer of power because of the executive vesting clause." Uh, of the Constitution, the strong presidency, uh, and you know the, the that whole argument where you know he got the double tap earlier. Like, yeah. not only are you not immune, but you're spe- especially not immune in this particular instance if, because we have to take this argue these in- these indictments is true. And they say, yeah.
3: um- "Oh, go ahead." It, in a way, what they're saying is like this is the perfect case to address this issue of presidential immunity <laughs> right. because it's so clearly. Could not possibly apply on these facts. Mm-hmm. It's it's you know to the um, harder case would have been um, let's say Biden decides to declare war on I don't know Canada, and some prosecutor indicts him for murder for over the deaths of Canadians who were killed in the military action, like. That's a harder case because that's a discretionary act well within a constitutional authority of the commander in chief authority to decide where and how to defend the United States. Um, So could you be held criminally liable for, you know, traditional murder in those circumstances? Probably not. But it's, that would be like more of a dilemma for an appellate court to have to get their heads around. This one is like, (laughs) you broke the law in an effort to cheat and hold on to power. Mm That's like exactly why you you want you want presidents to have to obey the law.
2: Yeah. And they say, in addition to the generally applicable concerns discussed Supra, the allegations of this indictment implicate the Article 2 interests investing authority in a new president and the citizenry's interest, citizenry's interest In democratically selecting its president the alleged conduct violated the constitutionally established design for determining the results of a presidential election as well as the electoral count act of 1887 neither of which establishes a role for the president in counting or certifying electoral college votes this is not your job sir the president of course also has a duty uh, under the take care clause to faithfully execute these laws this duty encompasses following the legal procedures for determining election results and ensuring that executive power vests in the new president at the constitutionally appointed time. To the extent the former president maintains that the post-2020 election litigation that his campaign and supporters unsuccessfully pursued implemented his take care duty, he is in error. In <laughs> error. <laughs> former President Trump's alleged conduct con- conflicts with his constitutional mandate to enforce the laws this particular case is you like it this is like extra shut up sir
0: yeah uh,
2: thus the quadrennial presidential election is a crucial check on executive power because a president who adopts unpopular policies or violates the law can be voted out of office and that was judge ludig's driving point that that is a check on his power the voters that's right and, That's that, right. and that, that that, vesting clause, the quadrennial presidential election, every four years, right? That's the whole ball of wax. Former, they, say, they go on to say, Former President Trump's alleged efforts to remain in power, despite losing the election, were, if proven, an unprecedented assault on the structure of our government. He allegedly injected himself into a process in which the president has no role, which is the counting and certifying of the Electoral College votes, thereby undermining constitutionally established procedures and the will of Congress. We cannot accept former President President Trump's claim that a president has unbounded authority to commit crimes that would neutralize the most fundamental check on executive power, the recognition and implementation of election results. They say that the voters, We, we are the most fundamental check on executive power. They go on to say, nor can we sanction his apparent contention that the executive has carte blanche to violate the rights of individual citizens to vote and have their votes count. Why does that sound familiar? Title 18 code, uh, U.S. Code Section 241, the conspiracy against rights. Jack Smith says in his indictment that he conspired to violate the rights of individual citizens to vote and have their votes count. And they don't cite the indictment here. They are just echoing. Echoing what Jack Smith yeah, is charging. It's, it's very powerful.
3: Very powerful. And I and I think it's, I um, uh, you know I immediately was kind of seeing Judge Ludig's uh, reasoning um, coming through here as well. And I think it shows you the strength of that Amicus brief that he he was the first one to really point out this basic idea that if the president is immune from criminal prosecution then he no longer has to follow the vesting clause, which means he could stay forever. Yeah. And, there's no, and there's no, there would be no recourse. No recourse for the voters who voted for someone else. No recourse for Congress, n- nothing. Uh, the absurdity of that, well, I, his, his example, I think, exposed the absurdity of, of the motion. And, yeah. the, and the judges clearly responded to that
2: here. They sure did. And then they actually go on to say, at bottom, former President Trump's stance would collapse our system of separated powers by placing the president beyond the reach of all three branches. Presidential immunity against federal indictment would mean that, as to the president, the Congress could not legislate, the executive could not prosecute, and the judiciary could not review. We could not accept that the office, the office, there's number four, of the presidency places its former occupants above the law for all time thereafter. Careful evaluation of these concerns leads us to conclude there is no functional justification for immunizing former presidents from federal prosecution in general or for immunizing former President Trump from the specific charges in the indictment. And so holding, we act, quote, not in derogation of the separation of powers, but to maintain their proper balance. Fantastic.
3: I think that's another quote from Youngstown,
2: isn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I think it is too. Yeah.
3: It's so, um, lots
2: of precedent here.
3: Yeah, it's a resounding um, opinion and just very, very, very conclusively and persuasively uh, presented.
2: Yeah, airtight. And uh, <laughs> next, we're going to talk about the impeachment judgment clause, but we do have to take one more break. Everybody, stick around. We'll be right back. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, we're back, and
3: now we're on to the final kind of big section of the of the opinion, and that is the part that that deals with uh, the impeachment judgment clause claim. Now, this one, uh, Ag, you're going to remember this is Trump's argument that. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Trying, try to explain it with. I'm a straight trying face. to put this together in my head in a way that's understandable. Trump's argument that he cannot be uh, charged criminally because he was impeached by the House, but acquitted by the Senate. And if he were then prosecuted for conduct that's generally the same, it would essentially result in some sort of double jeopardy-ish situation. And I say ish because he (laughs) never cites to the double jeopardy clause in his argument. And the, the judges point this out in what I think is an indication of some frustration on their part. Um, He just kind of claims that uh, it seems like double jeopardy if he were, you know, impeached and then acquitted to try him again for it. His biggest problem is that he conceded that (laughs) that if he were impeached and convicted, then he could be. He could be prosecuted after he left office, which raises which actually the question. Seems
2: more like double jeopardy, right?
3: It's more <laughs> double jeopardy. This is this is the thing that's been bothering me so much about it's this. It's still argument.
2: not double jeopardy, but it's more like double it's jeopardy than double-ish. your thing.
3: It's right. I mean. There's so many fallacies here. I sit in my kitchen at the bar like eating breakfast stuff and I I rant and rave about these things to no one off the top of my head. (laughs) But this one really gets me going because if your claim is that the political process of impeachment attached some sort of jeopardy and therefore you can't be placed in jeopardy again once you've left office and that's very generally his claim – well, the same thing happens if you got impeached and convicted. So it's, it's still two times you're getting charged for the same thing. But I don't know. Anyway, that's my very simplistic analysis of, uh, or to my legal conclusion that Trump's argument is nuts. Uh, but you'll get a much better articulated version from the court here, <laughs> where they say, the strongest evidence against former President Trump's claim of immunity is found in the words of the Constitution. The impeachment judgment clause provides that, quote, judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. But the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable and subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment according to law.
2: I, th- I think my favorite is that, you know, first they attack all the Marbury thing. Like, your Marbury defense is so wrong that Marbury actually proves you wrong and says you should be prosecuted. <laughs> then yeah. they say the strongest evi- evidence against your claim of immunity is actually in the impeachment judgment clause that you say— Right. should be a reason for you not to be criminal. The clause prosecuted. that you
3: are cloaking yourself with right now to claim some kind <laughs> of special immunity is they actually the clause that makes it very clear that you don't have yeah. any.
2: Your two arguments, your two citations are actually your worst enemies. Yes. It's fantastic.
3: Yeah. So so as we've been saying, Trump argued that to be criminally indicted, he must be impeached and convicted first. Um, And that position, of course, narrowed the party's arguments to the impeachment judgment clause. Remember, that was Judge Pan's point when asked if a president could be prosecuted if he ordered SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival. Okay, so to begin, former President Trump's reliance on a negative implication is an immediate red flag. The I love this line. The framers knew how to explicitly grant criminal immunity in the constitution as they did to legislators in the speech and debate clause. That's a total reference to what uh, judge Chutkin was putting down as well. Um, The impeachment judgment clause merely states that the party convicted shall nevertheless be subject to criminal prosecution. The text says nothing about non-convicted officials former President Trump's reading rests on a logical fallacy stating that if the president is convicted, he can be prosecuted, doesn't necessarily mean that if the president is not convicted, he cannot be prosecuted. And Mm -hmm. I mean, how ironic or rich maybe isn't that this is a quote from NLRB versus Noel Canning, uh, Justice Scalia concurring. In, in which he, of course, explains the fallacy of the inverse. Um, yeah, so that's
2: got to hurt a little bit. That's what Judge Chutkin brought up, remember? She, she And and I didn't know that it was a Scalia quote. The fallacy of the inverse, otherwise known as denying the antecedent, right. the logical fallacy she brought up in her ruling, and they bring it up here again, and it came from Scalia. Attributed
3: to Scalia, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, So this leads us to conclude that under the best reading of the impeachment judgment clause, a former president may be criminally prosecuted in federal court without any requirement that he first be impeached and convicted for the same conduct. Yeah. So here they say, because the president has no official role in the certification of the electoral college vote, much of the misconduct alleged in the indictment reasonably can be viewed as that of an office seeker including allegedly organizing alternative slates of electors and attempting to pressure the vice president and members of Congress to accept those electors in the certification proceeding. It is thus doubtful that quote, all five types of conduct alleged in the indictment constitute official acts. That quote is of course a reference to Trump's motion, which they are throwing in there to point out how wrong it is. Um, that was kind of a, another kind of side benefit, I thought, of this opinion is that it really comes out very conclusively um, resolving any question about whether or not the acts and the indictment were official conduct. If they, clearly, this court does not believe that any of the allegations involve things that would have been within the outer perimeter of presidential responsibilities.
2: Yeah, that's one of my favorite even ifs. You know, uh, e- even if, because his argument is, you can't, I need immunity for official acts. And the court's like, right. hang on a second, buddy. First of all, you don't get immunity. But even if you did, this was not an official act. You have no role.
3: That's
1: right. The
2: executive has no role in in, in certification of the electoral college vote. So no, 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 no. Th- that's their the great even if. And even if regular double, double jeopardy somehow applied... The the court says under precedent interpreting the double jeopardy clause, former president Trump's impeachment acquittal does not bar his subsequent criminal prosecution for two reasons. One, an impeachment does not result in criminal punishments. And two, the indictment doesn't charge the same offense as the single count in the impeachment resolution. There was one count in the impeachment. So even if you had fifth amendment, double jeopardy or somehow double jeopardy, if you were convicted by the Senate in an impeachment, first of all, it's not, impeachment's not criminal, but even if, let's pretend it was, this does not charge the same offense.
3: That's right. That's right. And they go through the very mechanical application of the standard there. Um, If the bottom line is, if at least, if every charge in the indictment contains at least one element of proof that is not included in the charge, the single charge that he faced in the impeachment, then the charges are not the same. And so he fails on both of those counts, right?
2: Yeah, so that's like an extra. That's like the fourth layer of even if. (laughs) (laughs) Like even if inception. Yes. And then they go on to talk about Blockburger.
3: So the court goes on to say, even if we assume that an impeachment trial is criminal under the double jeopardy clause, The crimes alleged in the indictment differ from the offense for which President Trump was impeached. Now, determining whether two charges are the same for double jeopardy purposes, courts apply what's known as the same elements test. It's also known as the Blockburger test. Um, Not Smashburger, but Blockburger. Okay. (laughs) Under the Blockburger test, none of the four offenses alleged in the indictment is the same as the sole offense charged in the article of impeachment. The indicted criminal counts include conspiracy to defraud the United States under 18 U.S.C. section 371, conspiracy to obstruct and obstructing an official proceeding under 18 U.S.C. sections 1512C2 and section K, and conspiracy to deprive one or more individuals of the right to vote under 18 USC section 241. By contrast, the article of impeachment charged former President Trump with, wait for it, incitement of insurrection. <laughs> so, what does that bring us back to, AG? Where, where what uh, familiar uh, thing are we both thinking right now?
2: Uh, how many times we've talked about the fact that uh, Jack Smith did not charge incitement of an insurrection uh, in his indictment. And again, brilliant. I doubt it would have made a difference in the immunity argument, but now it's something that doesn't even have to be argued. Because as we go to the fifth level of even if, you know, we could say double jeopardy wouldn't apply here anyway because you yeah. weren't charged by Jack Smith with incitement of an insurrection. Yes, which is what the impeachment it's, was about.
3: It really has to make you wonder, though, right? I mean, when we've been kind of defending his decision not to include incitement in the in the indictment, and that and that criticism has has kind of blossomed in a way in light of the Fourteenth Amendment argument that's going to go before the Supreme Court, right? Mm-hmm. Boy, if, if and we talked even... about
2: it as, in in respect to the fir- the First Amendment. Uh, You would have to have a First Amendment argument for freedom of speech.
3: And I think those First Amendment concerns are probably the things that were foremost in the minds of the the special counsel team when deciding not to go near the insurrection charge. they probably think that's – there's a third rail there of First Amendment problems. That thing could get hung up, be quite complicated, could give rise to all sorts of Supreme Court-eligible appeals. Let's just stay away from it. You wonder, did they go this far down the rabbit hole and think, hmm – he could use some sort of crazy double jeopardy uh, ish argument to claim presidential immunity and not you by maybe not.
2: We'll maybe seal not.
3: the deal for it not to be the same charges if we don't put incitement in there. I don't know. It's hard, hard to say. It's hard to see them seeing it that clearly from that far off, but it's, uh, hey, you got to give them credit because. Yet another reason why it was good to leave that out.
2: Well, you'd only have four levels of even if instead of five
3: True. Uh, true at that true. point.
2: Um, but, you know, you're talking about uh, considering that during the impeachment they did incitement of insurrection. It might have been like, oh, also, if, uh, aside from the First Amendment problems that we would run into uh, with incitement of insurrection charges— he could come up with some, you know, Fifth Amendment double je- jeopardy uh, argument, which yeah. would at the very least result in a a very good automatic interlocutory appeal and delay the proceedings. Yep. Um, but it would still have to be adjudicated. So it wouldn't really save any time. So I don't know. I don't know. But works out well here.
3: There you go. There you go.
2: Yeah, and they go on to say, thus, well-established law interpreting the Double Jeopardy Clause undermines rather than supports former President <laughs> Trump's argument that he oh, may of not course be prosecuted. <laughs>
3: uh,
2: yeah, yeah. yeah, so then they conclude, yeah?
3: Yes, so conclusion. We have balanced former President Trump's asserted interest in executive immunity against the vital public interests that favor allowing this prosecution to proceed. We conclude that concerns of public policy, especially as illuminated by our history and the structure of our government, compel the rejection of his claim of immunity in this case. We've also considered his contention that he is entitled to categorical immunity from criminal liability for any assertedly official action that he took as president, a contention that is unsupported by precedent, history, or the text and structure of the Constitution. Finally. We are unpersuaded by his argument that this prosecution is barred by, quote, double jeopardy principles. Accordingly, the order of the district court is affirmed.
2: Ta-da. And they have a pretty nice footnote at the end, by the way, too. I was wondering if they were going to invoke Edwin Meese. <laughs> <And> they did, <laughs> right? Because you remember, Edwin Meese filed an amicus brief arguing that special counsel Smith is totally invalid because no statute authorizes the position Smith occupies and the special counsel is a principal officer who must be nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate. Um, Now they say on appeal from a collateral order, we generally lack jurisdiction to consider these issues. So we're just going to let you know, Ed, Mr. Meese, we don't have jurisdiction to decide this. Yeah. Um, That's
3: like the participation trophy. (laughs)
2: <laughs> it's like you thanks for coming. Too, Ed. But yeah.
3: no. No soup for you here, Ed. Um Yeah, <laughs> it's it's a pretty uh it's a very satisfying read. 57 pages goes pretty quick. So recommend it for anybody who's interested in the details. But uh it's it's um you know, it is really well constructed, it's incredibly well cited. Uh they address every aspect of his uh, motion, every argument, every example, and they basically just completely shut the thing down in an unequivocal way. Um, and like we said at the beginning, it's hard to imagine what the Supreme Court justices will look at here and say, wait a second, this is super important and it's undecided, or we don't support what the court did here. We, we see the law completely differently, um, and so, therefore, we want to take this and and take our cut at it. I, I just find that to be uh, hard to imagine happening.
2: Yeah, man, I got to say, uh, this, this ruling has it all, okay? It has total jurisdiction. They invoke Nixon getting a pardon by Ford. Um, they talk about uh, denying the antecedent. I thought that was great. All the even ifs. Uh, the executive vesting clause brought up by judge ludig the fact that the people have the most powerful check on on the presidency and the executive they brought up the fact that he argued during his impeachment that he could be criminally indicted so don't impeach me this has it all two enthusiastic thumbs up for me on this ruling heck yeah <laughs> that's my <laughs> that's my siskel and ebert <laughs>
3: <laughs> two enthusiastic thumbs up. I feel like I'm just like eating popcorn, staring at the screen. Yeah.
2: Who has two thumbs and loves this ruling? That's this right. Girl. That's yeah. Right. Totally. It's uh
3: it's it's, very good. it's it's a good one. You know, uh, we were getting a little panicky waiting for it, but uh, it was worth it when it arrived. It's on a hot uh, scheduling timeline right now, which I think is good. Um, and we'll Fingers see. Fingers crossed we'll see what they on don't
2: grant cert. Fingers crossed they yeah, do not I- grant cert.
3: That's not going to happen quickly, right? Because he gets to decide whether or not to file his appeal by Monday. Then Jack Smith will get an opportunity to respond. Then Trump will get an opportunity to respond to Jack Smith's submission. Then the court is going to take some time to decide
2: whether or not they're going to grant cert. I mean, I but the mandate I, goes in effect Monday. Steve Vladek, s- I checked his feed. Yeah, the 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 DC proceedings will start going until. SCOTUS intervenes until and if what and that starts on yeah. Monday. Yeah. Because that's when the mandate so, goes into effect. So whoop whoop.
3: So we'll see. We'll see. Could be back on track and uh, keep your fingers crossed.
2: Yeah, and, and we do should we should consider the alternative. If SCOTUS grants cert, this whole thing goes on pause again. And we have yes, to wait does. for them to rule and we would get that ruling in June. And that, my friends, would push this possibly past the election. Yeah. So we have to consider that. Exactly. All right. Thank you very much. This has been an emergency episode of Jack, the podcast of all things special counsel. Do you have any final thoughts before we get out of here?
3: Uh, you know what? I'm just now, I've got a new date on the calendar to look forward to, and it's Monday. <laughs> Every <laughs> one of these developments just gives you a new thing to focus on. So, uh, yeah. see what happens then.
2: Yeah. And I will be watching, I believe, uh, I think both CNN and MSNBC are going to be broadcasting the arguments, audio arguments from the Supreme Court for Section 3 of the 14th Amendment on Thursday morning. And I'm going to be looking for citations from this ruling the at least four times that they confirm that the president is an officer of the United States and that the presidency is an office of the United States, because that is one of Trump's arguments against being... Uh, taken off the ballot in colorado so everybody thank you so much again for listening uh, we will publish this as soon as we are done editing it it may not be as fancily edited as most jack episodes because we want to get this out in a timely fashion so you might hear some extra ums or ahs we do apologize but for for us today it's about speed so we're going to get it out on the airwaves for you as soon as possible thank you very much i've been allison gill
3: i'm andy mccabe
2: we'll see you next week MSW Media.
0: Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money